0: I'm Clarissa Marks, and you are listening to On Wandering. I'm re-releasing the episodes I recorded a while back under a different show name, and this one's with artist and calligrapher Gabriel Wolf. I interviewed Gabriel in January 2020. We talked about his journey to finding a niche as a Hebrew calligrapher, specifically for tattoo art, and the ways that Jews are using tattoos to wrestle with and communicate their individual and group identity. Gabriel also shared how he sees his art as part of our collective struggle as Jews to find a way past a post-traumatic experience of life. He is a beautiful way with words, and I loved revisiting this part of our conversation. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Gabriel Wolfe. I wanted to start by asking when you first got interested in calligraphy.
1: Right. So calligraphy kind of accompanied me my whole life. I started, I started playing the violin when I was five. And I think around the same time, I started uh, being busy with calligraphy. I grew up in Munich, or I lived for quite a few years when I was a kid in Munich. So the calligraphy I was busy with when I was a kid was Latin letter calligraphy. And there's a story that, I don't know if it's true, but uh, my mom tells the story that we uh, were in an exhibition about um, Nazi posters. And I was really, really excited about the letters on the Nazi posters. So I started imitating them. And this is how I got into calligraphy.
0: Yeah, I read that story, and that makes me think of a question that I'd like to start asking all of my guests. When did you realize you were a minority?
1: Oh, um, I grew up as a minority. Um, I don't remember myself as not being a minority. It was all around us. My grandparents had immigrated to what was then Palestine in 35, I think, or thirty-six. And they came back to Germany right after the Holocaust. So I think in 47 or 48, just before the the war of independence in Israel broke out, they moved back to Germany because my grandfather was a theater actor and as such he was connected to the German language and he had no, he had no reason to stay in a non-German speaking country. For him, he was a German and so was my, my grandmother. So he decided to go back to Germany right when it was possible. Hmm. Um, so my mom grew up in a, in a country where everyone around them was German. Everyone basically had lived through the Third Reich. And my grandmother, who really didn't want to go back to Germany for, I think, obvious reasons, no? Mm. Always had this idea of when you, so when my mom will be 12 Uh, we'll go back to Israel. Israel is our home country. And my grandmother unfortunately died before my mom was 12. And so my mom lived in Germany for her whole life, feeling that she was actually not really in her home country. Hmm. She had been to Israel like once in, in the 70s, but she had this clear idea that Germany was not her country and Israel was. And so... When we immigrated finally to Israel, I was 12. But all the time until then, I clearly knew that I was an outsider. I belonged kind of, but not really. There were the Germans and then there were us. It was us. And of course, you know, I went to Hebrew school and I, kind of uh, religion classes and everything. And I knew that when everybody uh, celebrated Christmas, we didn't. So it was very, very clear. From the beginning, that we kind of didn't belong.
0: Mm. So, and when did your family, or when did you move back to Israel?
1: So, to me, it really wasn't moving back. To me, it was mm. an absolute uprooting. Of, oh, okay. I, I was I was a kid. I was when I understood that we would go. I was eleven. We moved to Israel like a few days off, before my twelfth
0: birthday. And then you had never been there before. So it was a completely new country for you.
1: Yes, absolutely. We had been there for a week or something in the summer before that, as a kind of uh, trying to, to get to know the country. But of course, you know, an immigration was still an immigration. So, yes, I didn't have the feeling that I was coming back. I had the feeling that I was uh, leaving for a new country. I didn't really want to go, but. And um, you know how it is when you're kids; you adapt very, very fast. So a few months after having immigrated to Israel, I spoke fluent Hebrew and mm-hmm. I went to regular school. And of course, I, I remembered where I came from, but I was an Israeli when I was, I don't know, when I was 13, I was an Israeli.
0: So when did you start designing or working with calligraphy in Hebrew letters?
1: I did already in, in Germany. I started... With Latin letters because they were all around me. My mom used to write her PhD on a on a on a typewriter, and that was of course you know a German typewriter. And our, our whole apartment was full of books, all German, French, and English books. So that was kind of the letters I knew more intimately. But Hebrew letters were um, part of my life when I was a kid. You know, every every Jewish kid learns how to write when they're Three, maybe it took me a few years longer, but when I was six or seven, I knew how to write Hebrew. The really creative Hebrew calligraphy started when I, was, when, when I came to, to Israel. So when I was 12 or 13, I started experimenting with these letters. I started to try to find ways to play with them, ways to build new stuff with them.
0: I think I read in one of your interviews that you mentioned as part of learning calligraphy, you spent a lot of time copying Hebrew documents that were preserved in archives in Jerusalem.
1: Yes. What kind
0: of documents were you copying?
1: So um, a few different. uh, One of the things that I obsessed over for a summer when I was, I don't know, 17 maybe, was um, handwriting from 18th century Ukraine. I think it had to do with uh, uh, Rabbi Nachman at some point, but mm. I, I just I found out that in that there was in the fifties in Israel there was a specific handwriting that was was very common, which I believed then was rooted in eighteenth century handwriting in, in the Ukraine. Looking back, I think it was complete bullshit, but <laughs> I, I was really I was really amazed with that. And my mom used to work in the. In the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, so she had access to all these archives. So I would just sit weeks in dusty cellars, uh, going through going through letters that nobody had read for the last two hundred years, um, looking for ways to uh, to understand how handwriting developed. And one other thing I was amazed with at some point was nineteenth century German art uh, Art Nouveau. There was a specifically Zionist um, um, stream in Aptovo in Germany that used Hebrew letters. Now, it was very obvious obvious that something was wrong with these letters. They were kind of out of balance. So I started um, looking for um, parallels or similarities between German calligraphy of that time and these Hebrew letters. And... As well, I built like crazy theories how they came into being, which basically, you know, they're wrong. But <laughs> I was busy with that, and yes, I did that for years because there, are, there are loads of archives in in Israel, especially especially in Jerusalem, that are kind of they're forgotten. They're accessible, but they're forgotten, and millions of documents. And for a calligrapher, of course, that's that's a treasure, you know.
0: Yeah, were they were they legal documents? Were they just letters that folks wrote to each other? Marriage certificates? What were these documents that you were working with?
1: Yes, <laughs> all all, <laughs> all of them. Okay, yeah, letters less. Um, the main documents that are preserved today are legal documents. Okay, so for example, there's a Beidin that was functioning, um, I think, until the late nineteenth century in Altona with What uh, which today is a a part of Hamburg in Germany. And the whole archives, I think like 200 years of uh, certificates and uh, like um, documentations of this big and and so on and so on, was just transferred to Jerusalem, stuff like that, mainly legal documents. But because today legal documents are printed, but back then, of course, they were handwritten. And to me, it didn't much matter what was written in them. What I was interested in was only the letters, the handwriting.
0: So, when did you first think of designing calligraphy for tattoos specifically?
1: It was it was a coincidence. I, when I was in my early twenties, um, people just started asking me for it. Hmm. Uh, in the beginning, was friends, and then friends of friends, and at some point, um, I think I I wanted to learn HTML, and so I built kind of a blog or something. And because I calligraphy is what I had, I just you know uploaded a bunch of my works, and then step by step um, requests started pouring in. Uh, the internet back then was really not what it was today, so it, it happened slowly. But I was not interested in tattoos whatsoever. I was never I was never one of the cool kids, so mm-hmm. I didn't have any tattoos. I, I wasn't fascinated by tattoos. I had a lot of piercings, but tattoos wasn't something I was busy with. I considered myself you know, interested in calligraphy. In fact, it took me years to really take an interest in tattoos as such. And that was just because more and more people started asking me for calligraphy designs specifically for Jews. And most of them were obviously Jews.
0: So now you work as part of a team, right? You have someone else who helps with the translation or getting the wording right
1: when folks yes, make requests. Correct. Yes, so, that's correct.
0: So, can you tell me a little bit more about that process?
1: Yes, I work together with a, with a guy who uh, who lives in Haifa, in the north of Israel. Um, he's a Bible scholar and he's a linguist, and he is writing his PhD in uh, Jewish history. He's busy with words. He's a poet as well. His approach to words is, I feel it's deeper than my own. What I'm interested in is letters, Mm -hmm. and he is really uh, a man of the words. So the initial um, kind of part of a design process involves a lot of thinking about which words are suitable for a tattoo. Sometimes people come with names, and then it's pretty easy. Sometimes you have to think how to transliterate names, but basically you have the words. But sometimes people come with ideas like, um, I don't know, my grandfather just died. I would like to commemorate him. Or I have been through a tough year, through a rough year. I would like to find a way to touchstone, to get out of it. And then he is the one who really tries to build a story or tries to hear the story and looks for references in either in the Mekorot, either in you know, biblical, biblical verses or in the Talmud, or in Israeli poetry, or in other, in other texts, and suggests a few different options, and I create my art from these words.
0: What drew me to your style initially is that it's not just linear letters. You're really good at making the letters shaped into a, a representation of something else. So you have in your you have examples on your website of like someone asked for the Shema in the shape of a tree, or there's another quote that's written in the shape of a lion. How did you develop that style where you know the letters are arranged into a pictograph?
1: It took a long time. It took a long time um, during which I was not really interested in being creative. I was busy with being exact. But at some point, it was just not enough. So I started, you know, embellishing more and more. And then I started adding some round shapes, which is still something I, I love to do. And at some point, a guy asked me for a tree. It was a tree of life. And at the beginning, I... Thought it was completely impossible. I've been <laughs> pushed and pushed and pushed, and the first tree was born. And from there, I felt that, you know, the sky's the limit. And mm. I started experiment, experimenting with it. And it adds another layer to my art. So, um, writing a text and embellishing it and making it balanced is one thing. But creating, for example, a phoenix for uh, a rape survivor. Mm. Uh, which is something that happens more than anything else, um, is a complete different level of representation of a story. So you have the text talking about the story, and you have the form kind of um, suggesting a solution to the situation or giving the situation a new horizon. And that is what I really love about my art, that it 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 is the process of a transformation within a piece of art.
0: I was reading on your website that there is not a lot of history of Hebrew letters being used in artistic pictorial forms because of the confusion in, in Judaism about what's iconography. So you also looked to other cultures, like you looked at Arabic calligraphy for inspiration. Was that... Difficult to translate calligraphy from Latin or Arabic into something that could be used for Hebrew letters?
1: It was definitely a challenge. So I earlier talked about the German Art Nouveau artists um, who tried to take an aesthetic that was prevalent in German calligraphy of the time and impose it on, on Hebrew letters. And that is something that it's possible, but... It can fail tremendously.
0: What does it look so like he, when it fails?
1: <laughs> it looks out of balance. Okay. So the the basic Latin letter is based on a on a square, and the basic Hebrew letter is kind of it hangs on a line. It has you know the, if you look at Hebrew letters if you look at the Hebrew text, and you don't know how to read it, the first thing you see is basically a line at the top of the letters that goes through the whole text, and then some stuff hanging from it. And this is something that you kind of intuitively have to understand uh, in order to be creative with these letters. And in the case of, of Arabic letters, it's different. Again, there's the same line, but it's at the bottom of the letters. So this is, this is one specific difference between the different alphabets, and there are you know, several others. So like any translation, like translating a poem from one one language to the other, means that you have to really understand both worlds. So it's kind of diving into one calligraphy and picking what makes sense in one system, in one calligraphy, in one art form, and try to not just impose it on the other, but uh, kind of take the essence and let this essence bloom in the other, calligraphy in the other art form, in the other system, in the other alphabet. But for example, making, what did we talk about? Phoenixes and lions? lions. These are definitely ideas that I took from Arabic calligraphy.
0: Oh, um, okay.
1: This is very um, common, or this is very emblematic to Arab calligraphy.
0: Do folks ask for the phoenix quite often?
1: Yes, that's true. I, um, a phoenix is something that that is very common, that is a theme that is very common a lion is a theme that is very common and of course then uh, Stars of David and any specific uh, Jewish symbolism but generally speaking people don't come when they're at the top of their game, people look for, or often look for a tattoo when they're in crisis, Uh, tattoos are always either um, a touchstone so either something to hold on to or an expression of their identity, so a lot of it is a lot of it's about um, sexual assault survivors. Surprisingly, a lot is about people coming out of the closet, and then there is the kids of Holocaust survivors who wanted a tattoo for for the last I don't know thirty years, and they promised their parents that they would get it once the parents passed. And the parents pass, and the kids commemorate their parents with a tattoo, which is a crazy tension, no? Yes. Commemorating a parent who didn't want you to get tattooed with a tattoo. The same tension kind of like, you know, getting a, a Hebrew tattoo in general. As a Jew, you, you mark yourself as a Jew with a transgression against the Jewish rules. So this this tension is really a part of, of the process of almost every tattoo I ever designed.
0: Right. So I was going to ask, there's a lot of confusion about whether or not Judaism as a religion approves or disapproves of tattooing. And there's debate about whether or not you can be buried in a Jewish cemetery with a tattoo. So have you gotten pushback from more conservative Jews about your work because of this?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We tried to arrange an exhibition about Jewish tattooing in Germany. And we're looking for a rabbi to kind of uh, not say... Tattoos are okay, that's great, just, you know, all the Jews should get tattoos now, but mm-hmm. just somebody who would say, it's okay to talk about the issue. And we didn't find one single rabbi who was willing to do that in Germany. So hmm. yes, I get a lot of, of pushback. There is no question that tattooing is prohibited in Judaism. It's not, you know, it's kind of a minor offense. It's not like breaking Shabbat, for example. It's it's maybe a little bit like shatnez like mixing, uh, you know, garments I guess that you know the T-shirt that you're wearing right now. You don't know if it's if it's shotnez or not. It's just not something that really concerns us. But tattooing is kind of the same, you know, level of horribleness Mm. within Jewish within Jewish religion. But yes, it's prohibited. There's no question. You can get buried. Um, That's not. I don't know where it comes from, but I heard that this is a confusion that originates in a Seinfeld episode. But I don't know if, it's, if, that's, if that's true. But yes, you can definitely get buried in a in a Jewish cemetery. Nobody will ask you, even if you're tattooed you know, from head to toe. But still, it's a sin. There's no question about that.
0: I wanted to dig in a little bit more into how these tattoos are part of Jewish identity do you feel that being Jewish is part of your work as an artist?
1: Yes, absolutely. Being Jewish is part of, of everything. I don't think there's a lot of, lots that I do that is not in some way related to being Jewish. And definitely my art is all about being Jewish. My art is almost all about looking for a secular Jewish identity looking for an honest way to express a Jewish identity that is not limited by by religion. I'm not an atheist, but I'm definitely not religious. I you know, if needed, I work on Shabbat, although I prefer not. I don't eat pork, but it's not that I keep kosher or something. So I'm not a religious person, but my Jewish identity is it's a big really big part of my life and it's a really big quest in my life. It's a really big, um, there are a lot of questions about it. So my art is all about this and listening to people talk about their own struggle, their own quest, their own search for a Jewish identity is a big, big part of this work.
0: You made a really interesting point in your artist statement on your website that Jews used to identify themselves more publicly and regularly with clothing like a kippah or yarmulke, or sometimes they were identified in a way they didn't choose with a yellow star. But now modern secular Jews are less likely to wear those identifying features and can otherwise pass as non-Jews. So can you tell me about how your work designing Hebrew tattoos fits in with that story of presenting a public Jewish identity?
1: Yes. Identity is always, or part of identity is always reflective. So it's always seeing yourself through the eyes of the other. So what the other sees in you is maybe a bigger part of how of our self perception than we may we may, may want to think. So I don't know uh, if you take a very handsome guy. Um, the chances that he will be successful in life are bigger than somebody who is unpleasant to look at because people treat him in a, in a different way. And so being viewed as Jews, being publicly recognized as Jews, helps us to live Jewishly in two ways. One is you recognize other Jews or other Jews recognize you. And so if you're sitting in a train and... A Jew sits next to you, even if you don't talk to him. There is a Jewish presence in that train, and so you're. It's not this atomized singular existence that is so so much part of our modern lives. And then towards the other, to, towards towards uh, going towards the Gentiles, I think it's almost a political statement to be visibly Jewish, especially in a in a society that is latently uh, Mm anti-Semitic. So being present in the public sphere as Jews, I think, is a a big part of a healthy, proud Jewish existence and identity.
0: Do you think that the folks who are coming to you for a tattoo design are looking for a more public way to signal that they're Jewish?
1: Some of them, yes, definitely. Some of them definitely are going for, for that. And some of them even even well phrased. Some of them really talk in these terms of wanting to be perceived as a Jew in order to stick to that identity. But not everyone, definitely not. A lot a lot of people to um to themselves on, on the back or on the ribcage or on the shoulders where it's not often visible. Um this being visible as Jews is kind of that's that's my quest. That's mm. I think this is really important for us as Jews, but not everyone agrees. Um, and definitely not all, all of my clients see themselves as, you know, warriors of Jewish visibility.
0: Why does it feel important for you personally?
1: I used to live. I'm an Israeli. I, I grew up in in Jerusalem, or at least you know my, I was socialized in Jerusalem. My my important years, I lived in in Jerusalem, and most of my years, I lived in Jerusalem. And the um, feeling of being back in the diaspora, while on one hand it really makes it possible to look for a Jewish identity, which in Israel is very, very hard, um, as well puts me in a situation where I'm a minority. And, and minorities um, have an advantage and a disadvantage. The advantage is we start looking out for each other. Uh, we start building a community, almost inevitably, But of course, the disadvantage is that sometimes, you know, days pass by without me meeting another Jew, without some Jews meeting other Jews. So Jewish questions don't necessarily keep us busy. And in a world that is so crazily uh, individualistic and that demands so much individualism from us, uh, kind of in in such a world, it's easy to lose our collective identity, Hmm. which is Judaism.
0: So do you have any tattoos yet? Yes. yes. <laughs> in the end, I got
1: tattooed. <laughs> After uh, years of working in tattoos, I got tattooed. I got a half sleeve with the Star of David, obviously, and then some plants from the different places I lived in. I, I, As I mentioned, I grew up in Munich. I was actually born in Dachau, and I grew up in Munich, and then I lived for most of my life in Jerusalem. Then I, I went on to live in Rotterdam in the Netherlands, and then... In the last five years, I lived in Buenos Aires, and now I live in Berlin. And so I collected kind of plants from all these places, and I made a half-slave with the Star of David. Kind of the story of my life, and the conclusion, I'm Jewish.
0: (laughs) What happens if you move somewhere else? You're going to have to get another Ah, plant and add to it.
1: I guess I will never be able to move again.
0: Okay, that's it. (laughs) It's done. (laughs) Do you get any questions about your tattoos from folks on the street who you know, don't know who you are but are interested in what you have in your arm? Sometimes questions.
1: Mm-hmm. Sometimes just, you know, this recognizing as being a Jew by other Jews. Hmm. And as well, some unpleasant uh, encounters, oh. you know, less pleasant encounters. Encounters. It's, it's Berlin. Actually, the, it's the safest place I know to be a Jew, including Jerusalem. Hmm. Definitely safer than Buenos Aires, where... Any racism, but especially anti-Semitism, seems to be just uh, very, you know, public and open, and it's okay to, you know, curse a Jew as a Jew on the street.
0: In Buenos Aires? Yes. yes wow, I didn't yes. know that.
1: A Jew or a, a Peruvian or, or whatever, like, just racism is much less subtle than it is in, in, in Berlin. Hmm. There's a lot of um, Arab immigration here, and generally speaking... While I do think that most Germans have some anti- some anti-Semitic uh, ideas, Arabs are more open in expressing them. So I do get some unpleasant comments from Arabs some once once in a while.
0: Hmm. Does anyone ask for a tattoo in Yiddish?
1: Yes, actually, two of the most amazing works I ever made were in Yiddish. To me, Yiddish is Yiddish was a super important attempt to find a diasporic uh, Jewish identity because my grandparents of course they spoke Yiddish and, and the generations before them and the fact that to me Yiddish was uh, just part of my cultural surrounding when I was a kid and in Israel it was immediately ridiculous. it was immediately ridiculed mm. because Yiddish is not something you can you know you can speak publicly in Israel. it's like, It's almost an anti-Zionist offense or something. Hmm. So um, two of the people I created um, tattoos for in Yiddish really became kind of moments of epiphany for me. One was uh, a woman in Mexico, Mexico City, whom I later met in Berlin when she was visiting here, who got tattooed Liebe und Arbeit, uh, Love and Work. Um, She herself studied in the only Yiddish-speaking non-Zionist school in Mexico City where she grew up. She's a psychoanalyst. And she had the same kind of ideas of looking... We have very uh, similar language. She was as well looking for a non-Zionist or um, post-Zionist, particularly diasporic Jewish identity. And she said... Just like in most of Latin America, Hebrew is the language of Jews, but Yiddish is the language of her grandparents. So tattooing herself in Yiddish rather than Hebrew was uh, an important act to her. And a few years before that, I had a guy, I forgot his name, but he tattooed a phrase from the Yiddish police, help me out here.
0: The Yiddish Policemen's Union? Yes, with exactly.
1: With Michael Shaban. Exactly. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. He did the phrase from there. I can't remember the phrase, but it, it as well, it was this um, moment of understanding that Yiddish was not just in my head, and it was not just at the beginning of the 20th century. It's something that people still really care about. One of the reasons I, I immigrated to Berlin in the end was that I had the feeling that maybe a Yiddish, a new, honest, and authentic Yiddish culture would grow here. And I think that maybe uh, I was wrong. There are a few Yiddish um, musicians here, but it's artificial. As long as there's no Yiddish life, as there's, as long as there are no kids who speak Yiddish, um, I don't think there can be an authentic Yiddish culture. Yeah. But yeah, Yiddish.
0: Yiddish. So, what's something that you're curious about right now, or that you want to start working on?
1: I'm right now. I'm working on a on a sculpture for the new building in, of the Telsa Jewish Museum. They have a new oh, wow like, ward, and I I create the kind of an, an emblem for for the outside. The interesting thing about it is that um, calligraphy, when it becomes more and more creative, it kind of Almost automatically is looking for a third dimension. So it, while in the beginning, letters just stand next to each other. Letters get more and more intertwined in the process of becoming more and more creative. And while they intertwine, um, they need kind of they need this. Uh, they need to go above and below. And in the beginning, on paper, this is just uh, uh, an optical illusion. But working with it more and more. I kind of already for years I feel the need to really work in three dimensions. So when the curator of the Tulsa Museum called me and asked me to create this calligraphy, it was a it was kind of it was a great opportunity to really go for this third dimension and create sculptures rather than just calligraphy on paper. It feels almost like a natural next step. I was waiting for for this opportunity my art was waiting for this opportunity so i'm really happy about that and another thing is an exhibition i have in uh, in the summer of 2020 here in berlin about abstraction in jewish praying i mentioned before i'm really not a religious person but i do pray the only thing or the only two items that i carry with me since i'm since my bar mitzvah and that I never left behind throughout all my all my immigrations is my Sido on one hand and my Talito on the other. it's it's there. I, don't, I I have a hard time justifying it. I have a hard time really accepting it, but I do pray. And there is an exhibition about the abstraction that is needed for a secular Jew to pray.
0: That's fascinating. Know. Where is that going Let's to see. be?
1: <laughs> Where is it going to be? It's going to be in... Well, it's going to be in a in Berlin. Actually, it's going to be in a Christian space in Berlin. They asked me to create it. So, yeah, this summer. It's wow. Yes.
0: Okay. So is there anything that I haven't asked about yet that I should have asked?
1: Yes. When we talk about Jewish tattooing, we should see it in a in a historic context. Um, We talked before about um, about tattooing being prohibited, Mm. but being a minor offense. And the question why shatnez, so mixing of garments, is just a forgotten offense or forgotten prohibition. And why tattooing is so central and and arises so much anger and so many hard feelings within the Jewish community. Um, I think is is interesting and uh, you know, th- through these thousands, literally thousands of conversations I had with Jews about their identities, um, I think I discovered a few things. One of them is that the reason why tattooing is still so so offensive to so many Jews is the Holocaust. You know? hmm. yeah in Auschwitz they tattooed us, so uh, Tattoos is something that, you know, we don't touch. Mm-hmm. And uh, one other thing we talked about is how tattoos are always about identity. And how tattoos um, can either be uh, like a confirmation of an identity already have or uh, a projection. So a wish for an identity, something that I want to be. So, you know, I don't know. I want to be a strong person. I want mm. to be a tough guy. Now put a skull on my forearm, <laughs> and the Holocaust as well is something that is, that is deeply connected to Jewish identity. So there is a there is a connection, there is a parallel, and if we look at at the historical moment at which we are right now, um, it, I think it's it's interesting what is happening. The last survivors are dying. So when I when I was a kid, um, old people in synagogue were you know expected kind of to have a number on their arm. Of course that was in Germany so you know war survivors hmm. but that was that was my surrounding. Old people were Holocaust survivors. My grandparents, they survived because they moved to Palestine and, and then back to Germany but their whole family they all stayed in Auschwitz. So this this presence of the Holocaust, it was very, very uh, you know, omnipresent in my childhood. But if I look at my daughter, for example, she'll have her 18th birthday this year. Her great-grandmother, who herself went through the Holocaust, um, she passed away when my daughter was four or something. So that whole generation, one generation after us, has a completely different kind of uh, approach to Holocaust. And hence, a different approach to that huge part of our Jewish identity that is the Holocaust. Um, on one hand, that's a, that's a challenge because remember, remembering the Holocaust, of course, is super important. And it's not just the fact that we have to remember the Holocaust, it's as well uh, the conclusions. So how we remember the Holocaust, which I think is the most important question for our times, our, like for Jews, of course. Mm -hmm. our approach to the holocaust there is nothing that in the end deeply is more important than that Um, so on one hand it's the challenge it's it's kind of the fight over the remembrance of the holocaust on the other hand it's a big opportunity it's a great opportunity and that is getting rid of being a post a post-traumatic society
0: Mm -hmm.
1: we've been the generation of our parents, they were just about survival. So they they are the kids of those who really came out of Auschwitz. They had one role in life as being Jews and that was to to reproduce, to you know, fill the ranks again. Hmm. And that is absolutely understandable, but it's a post-traumatic experience of life. It's a post-traumatic life experience. Mm-hmm. When we when we immigrated to Israel, um I mentioned before, the apartment we lived in was covered with books. We had no art in, in, at home because all the walls were, you know, covered with books. And, when, of course, when we immigrated to Israel, we could take, I don't know, 5% of these books. And these books were the life of my mom. She, you know, she, her identity was these books. And so it was a really hard quest to, a really, a really hard choice. What do I give away? What do I take with me? Mm-hmm. What did you take did she take with her, in the end, the Holocaust books? This mm. was, you know, from all the books that she had collected through the whole life, and the books of her father as well, from all these books, the most important books to her identity were the Holocaust books. And then if you look at, uh, you know, Israeli society, this is the society I know best. Um, it's a post-traumatic society. It's a society that is in a, in a situation where um, it acts in a, a very unfree ways, mm-hmm. the, the occupation to me is mainly a question of post-trauma, of, of a Holocaust post-trauma. All this is going to change. The question is just how it's going to change. Mm-hmm. Is it going to just become a part of our identity for the next, I don't know how many generations? Or will we be able to, to heal from this? That doesn't mean we should forget the Holocaust. It just means we should take a step back and look um, if, we can, if we can heal, if we can leave the trauma behind, just like any other trauma, just like any other collective trauma. And so when I think about tattoos, because they're connected to, to the Holocaust and because they're connected to Jewish identity, or it can be a tiny step on a long, long way of um, rethinking how we live as Jews with the Holocaust. This is the moment we have to solve this. We have to solve our identity, we have to solve our our feeling of existence. Tattoos Absolutely. can be a part of this. Tattoos can be a tiny, you know, a tiny stone in that new house we build.
0: Right, well I can think about bringing it to a very individual level if you're someone who wants to get a Hebrew tattoo And you think of it as a celebration of your Jewish identity and its art and it's something that you're very proud of. And the only thing that's holding you back from getting it is a fear that you've inherited or a traumatic experience that you've inherited from your grandparents or great grandparents because their experience with tattoos was related to violence and genocide. You have to think about how do I honor that memory and legacy of trauma? but also not let it stop me from expressing who I am and becoming who I want to be through something beautiful like a tattoo. And I think Hebrew letters, especially in a a beautiful calligraphy art form, are one of those ways of holding on to another part of being Jewish. It's related to other parts of our history besides the traumatic part of our history. You know, I've seen all of your tattoos, and I'm so, or at least all the ones you have online, and I, I'm mm. so excited that there are people out there wearing those who feel really proud of their Jewish identity, and like that there is something beautiful that's been created through our the history of our language and art. So that's why I was very excited to talk with you for exactly yeah, nice. all of those reasons. It's been lovely chatting with you. Is there if folks are interested in your work or they want to learn more about what you're doing or tattoos, how can they learn more?
1: I I have a website, I have an Instagram account, just, you know, Google Hebrew tattoos, you'll find me easily enough. Um, I have as well my non-tattoo art, you'll find it under my name, Gabriel Wolf. Um, But same thing, Google is your best friend, just Google Hebrew art and I'll be there on the first page.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. This has been a really amazing conversation.
1: Thank you. It was really amazing.
0: This episode was produced by me, Clarissa Marks, with music by the Rondo Brothers. If you like the show, you can support us by sharing it with a friend or by adding a review to your favorite podcast app. That'll make sure that other listeners can find us. You can connect with me on Twitter or Instagram at Clarissa R. Marks. And to hear more episodes, read transcripts, or learn more about the people or media we mentioned, visit our website onwandering.co. Take care and see you next time.